This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. First, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." And then a parallel passage in Deuteronomy 5, though note the the differences. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. That your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And we'll stop there. Last week, we started a series on work and rest, which was picked by your session. Uh, Rick's gone on sabbatical, and we hope that he is resting. And we're going to look at this topic of rest today. Last time we looked at the the mandate to work. And we saw that according to uh, the Bible, work is good. It was given before the fall as a way that we could be a part of being like God. That we could create. That we could uh, research and uh, explore. That we would build and subdue. That we would work the garden and keep the garden. And that we could manage creation as little vice regents of God, that it was a good thing that then is cursed with the thorns and thistles, that work is full of toil and we have to wrestle with that, that it's a divine calling, a way to worship God, to serve God and our neighbor, to be part of the greater good and to offer to God worship, but it does have its frustrations. And today we're going to look at the mandate to rest. So we'll get right in after a word of prayer. God, we do thank you for the opportunity to be in your word and to have it preached. We know that it is you who changes hearts and minds and lives. And so we cry out to you, uh, knowing that your Holy Spirit is active among us. We know that your word is living and active and that it will carry out its intended design. We pray that you will use it for your glory at this time and for our betterment and uh, our knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you ever heard the story of the fisherman and the businessman? It's a wide circulated internet story. You've probably read it several times and just don't remember. Um, but you know, I hate using illustrations like this because people typically have heard them over and over again. But uh, I did get it off the internet. But it it's fitting, so uh, if you haven't heard it, then, then listen up. If you have, I'm so sorry. You'll have to endure the next few moments 
Um, there was a businessman who went on vacation in Mexico, and there was a fisherman who was bringing his boat in at a dock. And he saw that he had really large fish, and several of them. And he said, wow, that's a great catch. He said, uh, do you get fish like this all the time? He says, oh, yeah, every day I, I catch fish like this. And he says, wow, I mean, what do you do with those fish? He says, well, I, I feed my family, and I use them to sell. And he says, well, uh, how long does it take you to get those fish? He said, well, just, just a few hours. And you do this every day, yes. Well, what do you do with the rest of your time? He says, well, you know, I, I fish a little, and I, I help around the house. I play with my children. I take siestas with my wife. I volunteer at church. I help the neighbors. I sip wine in the evening, and then I uh, sing and dance with my friends into the night. And the man said, wow, well, I'll tell you, I am a Harvard MBA, and I can tell you that this is a good catch of fish, and you can make money on these fish. And if you would work a few more hours in the day, you could buy a better boat. Matter of fact, if you worked all day, every day, you could buy a whole fleet of boats. And if you could build this business over time, because you, you, you're clearly a good fisherman, you know where to get the fish, and they're great, uh, and, and they're in high demand, you could 20 years from now sell a booming company for, for millions of dollars. And the man said, uh, okay, well, what do I do then? He said, well, you retire. And he said, well, what does that mean? What do I do? He said, well, you can do whatever you want. You can fish a little. You can help around the house. You can play with your children. You can have siestas with your wife. You can volunteer at church. You can sip wine in the evening and sing and dance with your friends into the night. And, of course, you, the story's flawed, but you see why I, I brought it up this morning. This is the book that the church is asking you to read with us through the summer. And I wanted to read a quote from here. This is Tim Keller. He says, Because our disordered hearts crave affirmation and validation, it is just as tempting to be thrust in the opposite direction, making life all about career accomplishment and very little else. In fact, overwork is often a grim attempt to get our lifetime's worth of work out of the way early so we can put work behind us. These attitudes will only make work more stultifying and unsatisfying in the end. We overwork. We have that tendency. Some of us work too much and some of us work too little. But as we look at the, the concept of work and rest, we have to address this problem of overworking, which I think has run amok. And there are lots of reasons why we overwork and are in desperate need of rest. We have anxiety and fear, for example. You are afraid of the bills overcoming you. You're afraid of what might happen, that you might not have enough insurance, not enough money in the bank. What if this expense comes in? What if, you know, college costs more or, or what have you? We have a health problem. And, and yes, you need to manage your money, and saving money is wise and good. But we have not been given a spirit of fear. And far too often we are run by our anxieties and they work as a taskmaster over us, demanding things of us. And so we end up overworking out of that fear. That's why we read the Matthew passage. Another reason we are driven is materialism. I mean, back in the day, you got a station wagon. No one wants a station wagon now. It was replaced by the minivan. But the minivan, come on. Who's driving a minivan other than me, right? It's on the way out because the SUV's taken over, right? And now there's the crossover. And see, if you want to be, you know, be fashionable and you want to drive what looks good, the station wagon, no. 
The minivan, not so much. You see, you got to keep up with what's new. And materialism will drive you to keep up with all the latest technology and the new gadgetry. And you'll have to wear what's fashionable and what looks good for that season and that time. And this can rule your life. It becomes all about your status, what kind of vacations you take. You know, I have a Facebook account, and I notice that sometimes I see families, and they're always glowing. I mean, their kids are perfect, right? They're always praising each other on Facebook. They're clearly in marital bliss 24-7. Their vacations are awesome. Their clothes are good. Their vehicles are great. And I say, you know what? These people, when they use the bathroom, I don't even think it smells. That's the image that we want to project to the world. We want to market ourselves, right? And materialism is a piece of that. And so we work very hard to get what we want. Which has everything to do with my next point. We're driven because of identity. Deep inside, we feel valueless. And when you work and accomplish and make money, you feel successful. And that feels like some sort of balm to that emptiness, that insecurity. And so we're always trying to prove ourselves. And work becomes one of the chief places that we try to prove ourselves. I will be rich. I will be successful. I will gain respect. When I was at at JMU, I was in pre-med. I ended up going to seminary instead of medical school. But uh, some of my friends who went on to be doctors in in, in pre-med and JMU with me, I noticed through conversation with them that they had one really big reason for wanting to become a doctor. Respect. They wanted a job where they were respected. That is a a heavily sought-after sensation. To feel powerful and important, it it addresses in in an idolatrous way that deep insecurity that we don't want to talk about, that we keep turning our head away from, that we keep trying to strive to remove from our existence that emptiness, that criticism of self and criticism of others. So we are driven to overwork because of our own identities. They're lacking. We need more Jesus in our life. Another reason is simply it's cultural. Our society is driven by greed. And if you work for a corporation, for example, chances are, most likely, they're tightening the screws on you. They expect you to perform better. They're not necessarily paying you better, but you are expected to do more. And if you vacation, you're a bum. That kind of pressure is placed upon us. You know, I just got back from Florida. I told you uh, I went to visit my sister a few weeks ago. And my wife works for a corporation, and they've given her this nice laptop. Right? So she can work from home and increase her flexibility. She doesn't always have to go to the office. She can work at the house anytime or all the time. You see, so this vacation, we had a laptop with us. And the 16 hours of vacation that she was supposed to have received, she worked all 16 hours. Leaving me saying, why do we have a vacation? Why do you even pretend that you give your employees a vacation? And you know, even if you take a week off, typically if you're working, uh, you're overworking 60 hours a week or something, you've got to spend 30 hours a week preparing for the vacation on top and the 30 hours after the vacation covering what was missed because you're expected to do a certain amount of work, period. Our system is broken and it is not providing us rest. And we are made and designed for rest. 
So culturally, we are burdened to overwork. God calls us to rest. We need it. It's mandated for us before the fall as part of creation. Let's look at this. What is biblical rest? And then we're going to ask, how do we practice it? How do we achieve it? How do we get it? So what is it? How do we get it? First of all, the simplest definition of what is rest is that it is ceasing to work. You stop working. You see this in Genesis 2. This is what God did. God created, and then he stopped. And what did he do? He reflected on what he had already done. He evaluated it. He he enjoyed the fruitfulness of his labor. He said, this is good. This is very good. And there's a piece of celebration in there. And so you, like God, are to pause and to look back and reflect on your work, to enjoy the fruitfulness of it, to have moments of celebration. God's purpose for you to rest in creation is for freedom and joy. It is to your benefit. And just as there is something divine about work, there's something divine about resting. The Exodus passage, God says, I created in six days and on the seventh I rested. He's setting this as a pattern for your work week. God could have created any way he wanted to. He could have snapped his metaphorical fingers and everything could have come into existence immediately. But he chose to communicate to us creation through days, six days of work, and one day of rest. That we would understand our work week. God has put that in place and he says, because you are to be like me and I am a God who rests, you are to rest. And when you don't rest, you are failing in one way to be like your creator. And don't try to justify it as being better. No. Remember, there is no standard that God lives up to and therefore is full of glory. He is God. And from him comes every bit of what is right and wrong. All morality comes from his person. And so if he's a God who rests, then it is divine for you to rest. It has value because God rests. And so when we think about resting one in seven days, as was commanded to the Old Testament saints, we also have to acknowledge this understanding that it's a relationship with God. Again, it's our covenant relationship to God as our Father, that we're trying to be His image bearer, we're trying to be God to the earth in our work and in our rest. You need it. As one of my friends said, come away or come undone. Come away or come undone. You know, your body releases stress hormones when you are stressed, cortisols and other things. And these cause damage to your health. And you need time to filter them out. Did you know that a good hormone, like human growth hormone, that's a good one, you want that one. You do not get it unless you have had a full night's sleep. Your body won't release it. So if you rob yourself of rest, you rob yourself of health. God has purposed a day and a night working and sleeping, but also in the week 
He has put a plan to rest, to decompress. So there is a ceasing from working, the most basic definition. But then it goes further. What is biblical rest? It's also a ceasing from striving. And if ceasing from working is more of a physical, you know, it's, it's more of a time to reflect and to celebrate and decompress, then this is more the inward, psychological and emotional. This is wrestling with you trying to prove yourself. This is the part where you're trying to repent of your fears and anxieties running your life. This is where you wrestle with your inability or unwillingness to trust God with your existence. See, you think you have to manage it. God doesn't care about you enough or he's not, he's not, you know, he's busy or something. I don't know, that's the way we act. We've got to control and manage our lives because God's not going to do it. He's not going to take care of us. That's a lack of faith. And so biblical rest, we need to understand that we are constantly striving with those idols and and that image that I, I mentioned. And so we need to stop as we preach the gospel to ourselves. You know, I... I've won a lot of things over the years. I was good at athletics and academics and music, and I've gotten lots of prizes and awards, and I've I've won competitions and things. And I can tell you that none of it was ever enough. I never felt popular. I never felt successful. I've never been rich compared to, you know, American standards. Compared to the world, we're all very wealthy. It was never enough. I, I... I couldn't win that didn't satisfy that need to satiate that emptiness. So what, am I going to continue in that vein and become as rich and powerful and famous or whatever? I mean, to have some level of success? It's, it's vanity. It's foolishness. It does not satisfy your soul. And I could point to tons of people in Hollywood who have gobs of money and gobs of fame. And it's still the same. It's never enough. Look at the the billionaires. I mean, billions of dollars. Thousands of millions of dollars. And it's not enough. We have a problem in our soul, and we need to grow in contentment and repent of that godless unrest. So that striving is not the answer. Resting in the gospel and the truth of Jesus' love, that is the answer. In other words, let's put it this way. You stop work, and then in that, in that seeking to stop striving, you are pursuing God's peace. You want to be at peace in your soul. You know, Janice Joplin, who abused heroin to her demise, when asked why she used it so much, she said... I'm just trying to get a little peace, man. It reminds me of Psalm 131, where the writer says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child on the lap of its mother. Like a weaned child, I have calmed and quieted my soul. O Israel, hope in the Lord now and forevermore. We want to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This leads me to the third aspect, uh, which is related, and that is that biblical rest is an act of worship. It's communing with the God 
who loves us. It's acknowledging God through faith. Not merely as your creator and sustainer or as almighty God, but as the one who loves you and has delivered you. Did you notice the difference in the two parallel passages of the Sabbath? In the first one in Exodus, it says the reason you keep the Sabbath is because God had a Sabbath. And so you reflect God and it's part of his plan in creation that you be like him. And he has designed you to need that time. But you see in Deuteronomy a different uh, reason why you are to observe the Sabbath. And that is, he says, because I delivered you from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you are to have a day where you keep holy, you keep it set apart to worship me. In other words, out of gratitude for a God who saves us and delivers us, we are to rest. We are to render thanks to God. You could have been left in your bondage. God could have just left you there, fearful, anxious, striving, trying to prove yourself, driven by materialism in your culture, like Israelites making bricks without straw, being whipped by some taskmaster. But God interfered in your life. And when you try to validate yourself, the gospel comes in and says, you don't have to do that. God has spoken a word of you. He was pleased to bruise his son for you. And when you rest in that peace, there is rest in worship. As your heart is refreshed in that gospel truth and you surrender yourself and give yourself over to God and praise him. So the mandate to rest includes worshiping God who bled for you, who died for you. We might rejoice in his person. So it's so much more than not working. And listen, vacations may include rest, but you know. I've already mentioned you've got to work so hard before and after a vacation, but think of the vacation itself with all the planning, the logistics, the traveling. If you have kids, all the stuff, all the leisure activities, you know, it is laborious. And people always say, I need a vacation for my vacation, right? That it was too much work. And so think about that in, in terms of where is the component of worship? Where is the gospel entering in? Not just a break from working, but where is the peace and the opportunity to render thanks unto God? Eric Clapton, I read his autobiography. I was hoping that he had become a Christian. I couldn't tell from the media um, some of the songs that he had written and so forth. I knew he's been through some traumatic events. And I was hoping to see that, um, that he would profess Christ. But you know, what I saw was a man who was addicted to drugs a big drug abuser. He was addicted to alcohol. He was on a relentless pursuit of another man's wife. He eventually took that man's wife, and then that blew up, and then he had several other relationships. And throughout his life, he could not get off of alcohol. And he went to rehabs and tried different things. He couldn't couldn't accomplish that until, he says, until I surrendered. And I thought, here it comes. But that was it. He surrendered. And he said, and it works. And then he said, and I realize that I'm worthy of what I've received. The money, the praise. You know, he spends his life, typically he spends a lot of time on a very large yacht going around the world. So he's he's got surrender. 
He's got decompression. He's got leisure available to him. But where's the worship? Where is God who really gives true rest? Rest from your soul. Our culture says, love yourself. You know, you're worthy. Receive all this. Yes, you're big enough for that. And the gospel says, no, your soul was meant for something much, much bigger. It's meant for God. And without him, there is no real rest. And I hope, I hope that he finds that one day. And maybe he has, we don't know. But Biblical rest is a, is a ceasing from working, a ceasing from striving, and worshiping in relationship our covenant Lord who saved us. It's an opportunity for us to hit the reset button and be refreshed in the gospel and free in God's lavish love for us in Jesus Christ. So, what are some more of the nuts and bolts of how you get rest? That's what it is. How do you get it? How do you practice it? You've noticed that in these passages, God has instituted one day in seven. There will be a whole sermon later in the series about the Sabbath. But I want to point out right now is that we read in the Old Testament passage, you see that there were seasons. There were times and places for certain events in all of creation. Which is to say that God has, has a plan. He has mapped out for you to have rest. And so you are to have a liturgy in your life. You are to observe there's a time and a place for everything. Which means you need to have a plan to rest. You have to actively and intentionally work in your schedule moments to decompress, moments to, to preach the gospel to yourself, and moments to worship God. You have to plan for it, something we fail to do quite often. So we need designated times. There's a day in the week that God has given, but he also gave weeks in the year. There were feast weeks where they were not to work. Beyond that, he gave a sabbatical year every seven years. And then even beyond that, every 50 years, it was the year of Jubilee where everything was reset and all the land went back to the original owners. So God has purposed seasons and times for that decompression, for that worship. And so you must observe them. You must put them into your life. You have to be intentional in your lifestyle. And you can take that down into, the, into the, the daily practice of every day I'm going to spend some time in God's Word. I'm going to spend some time in prayer. Every day, and maybe I'm in a really stressful job, I'm going to plan to have a break right here because it's going to help me get through the rest of the day. It's going to help me bring those cortisol levels down. You know, it's going to help me decompress and think about uh, what God has done and, 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 and celebrate what I've been able to do through Him. So have... A liturgy. You cannot go to bed in the wee hours Sunday morning and expect to get up and engage at church. That's not planning ahead. I, I love crock pots. You know what's great about a crock pot is you dump a bunch of stuff in it and you go to church. Right? And then when you get back, there's food waiting for you. So, you know, I, I have three kids, and by the time church is over, everyone's hangry. You know, and then you're scurrying trying to get food ready. And now you realize, oh, we, we didn't go to the grocery store. And it's the Sabbath. And we're supposed to be resting. And now we're stopping to get groceries. And you, you see, you have to think ahead. It's important. So put it in your schedule. Then I want to point out that there are various disciplines. 
uh, these disciplines promote rest in your life. They are spiritual disciplines, and some of these will have their own sermon later. Um, I'm going to run through them. There's several of them. Uh, A, confess your sins. Deeply, at times, process where you have gone wrong, maybe in your lack of work, maybe in your overworking. Confess that to the Lord, and then appropriate the grace of the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. And that brings peace. It brings refreshment to your soul. It is a spiritual discipline. B, surrender your will. Invite God to be in charge. Submit to him. Acknowledge that you cannot run your life, that he runs the cosmos. He can certainly take care of you. He takes care of the birds, Jesus says. He'll take care of you. Surrender to him. C, have accountability relationships where you as a community are planning rest intentionally. You know, I, I was always really down on golf. And the reason is because I tried to play it years ago, and it's the most infuriating game ever. I mean, I could hit a really great shot, and you feel really great. And then, you know, the next four would be in some pond. And then the club's about to go in the pond, you know. And then if I had hair, I'd be pulling it out, you know. And... I'm like, this is, this is not good for me, right? And then I thought, it's really expensive. And it takes a really long time to play it. And then there's these large tracts of land that are dedicated to just golf. And I was, I was kind of down on it. And I'm sure um, I, I would echo some people's feelings about their spouse. You know, what a waste of time. Uh, but my, my opinion has changed. Um, I still don't play. Okay, it's not good for me. But some people really enjoy it. And golf courses are beautiful. They are orderly and manicured and well-kept. Someone has worked and brought beauty out of chaos. There's a lot of time to decompress. And that has value. That has real meaning in your life. And so if the middle of the week, Wednesday morning, you need that, you know, you're going to take five hours I support that. But what I really wanted to bring it up for is because when you play golf, you typically play with somebody else. And there's a community aspect to it. And that too is refreshing and fulfilling. And especially if you're playing with Christian brothers or sisters. Where you can support one another and encourage one another and confess sins or pray for each other. And then it becomes a more complete picture of rest. Not just ceasing. So, think about it in a community. D, go to church. Take advantage of the means of grace that God gives you. The preaching of the word, the sacrament, the wisdom in the room, the fellowship of believers. Take advantage of the ways that God has given for you to be refreshed in the gospel and engage yourself. E, a little more difficult. Seek simplicity in your life. Things are too complicated. Life gets too crazy. And you're part of that. You're making it crazy. Actively seek to remove distractions. You don't have to be sold on everything that's new. Take time. Protect it. Protect your heart. Repent of those idols and those distractions. Try to simplify your life. 
F, along with it, find places of solitude. Be able to sit quietly. I know so many people in this day and age, they can't sit still. They can't spend any amount of time. They've always got to have music playing. They're always on their cursed device. They have no opportunity because they don't want any solitude. What are you running from? What are you afraid of? What's going on in your head and in your soul that you can't be still? You need to be still. You need to listen. You need to pray quietly. You need to look around, observe. Remember when you were a kid and you, just, you, were, you marveled at the stars? You marveled at the, the vastness of the ocean? You saw little ants running around? Find moments of solitude. This may mean in our culture that you have to stand up to your boss. Now, be careful. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't get yourself fired. But you, as the salt and light of the earth, you may have to start making some movement in our culture that says these things are important. And I will not sell my soul to the, to the country store, the county store. I will not belong to you so that you can buy another boat or another house. Oh, my place in Malibu is falling apart. We need a better bottom line. You may have to take some courage and wisdom. Lastly, this will have its own sermon. That is the practice of praising God. I think that this has been lost in our culture. The discipline of praising God. And it's all over the scripture. And we'll look at that extensively. And as you recount the goodness of God in your life, what the old, old folks used to say, count your blessings, there is refreshment that comes upon you in rest as you, you let go. You find yourself in God. Let me wrap us up and we'll go to the Lord's table. We need rest, but we cannot have, because of the fall, because of the curse, the rest that we are designed for unless God makes a way. And because of Jesus Christ's work, you can enter God's rest. Because Jesus lived a life that you could not live, you can bear the fruitfulness of his toil. You can enjoy and celebrate what he has done. Because of his suffering, you can have refreshment. You can have healing. So let us stop. Let us, through the gospel, find peace and worship him. Let's take our fears and our idols and our self-validation and our emptiness to the cross where God has demonstrated that he loves you, that he knows what's best for you, and he has interacted in history to bring you that rest. The work of salvation is finished. So let us delight ourselves in Jesus and in his love. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you have made a way for us to enter your rest. Help us to do that. Help us to be intentional. Help us to plan. Help us to observe the disciplines and the means that you've given us to be refreshed. God, help us not give way to fear. God, grant us repentance that we will not overwork. Help us renew our minds, even in this time that we've spent looking at your word. And the things that are not of you, may they be forgotten. 
and the things that are of you. Put them into our minds throughout the week through your Holy Spirit that we would be changed for your glory and for our betterment. In Jesus' name, amen.